0: Chapter 1. But before we jump into the text, another story. In 1878, a fellow by the name of Evan Roberts was born in Wales. His father was a coal miner, so at the age of 11, Evan went and joined his father in the coal mines until he was 23 years old. At the age of 23, there was an explosion inside of the mine, and Evan was saved, but the Bible that he carried around with him everywhere he went was singed in the explosion. So then for the rest of his life, Evan would carry around that Bible absolutely everywhere that he went. So we've got a young man at a young age who carries his Bible around, and he was actually known as a young man of devotion and of prayer from a very young age. In fact, he was specifically burdened for his nation of Wales— By the Holy Spirit. So, what Evan would do as a young man is he would attend absolutely every service that he could. When the doors were open, he was there. If there were classes at night, he would show up. He was serious about what God had placed upon his heart, about his relationship, and about his prayer for the nation of the people that he loved. For 13 years, young Evan Roberts prayed for revival among the Welsh people. And then on one morning, As he tells the story, at one o'clock in the morning, the Holy Spirit woke him up and ushered him into the presence of God. And for four hours, Evan had um, conversation with the Lord in his presence. That happened for four months, every single morning at one o'clock in the morning. On October 31st, 1904, when he was 26 years old, Evan asked if he could begin holding meetings inside of his local church. Because he's a young man and he was the son of a coal miner, the the pastor gave him essentially a Sunday school classroom and said, yeah, feel free, go ahead and have meetings, and we'll bill it um, as a meeting for students and for young people. That's October 31st, 1904. In two weeks, there were over 800 people who were cramming into that church. After two weeks, there were so many people inside of that church and the Holy Spirit had taken over that Evan goes ahead and leaves and he begins to travel around to other churches in Wales. Because what God had done inside of him is he had given him a vision for 100,000 conversions in the nation of Wales. And so he begins to preach everywhere a door is open to him. What happened was so dynamic that the newspapers in Wales begin to uh, record what was going on every time uh, Evan would speak or others would speak in his name. He had asked the Lord for 100,000 people. In six months, the newspapers of Wales had documented over 250,000 conversions inside of that nation. The day before Evan showed up in that church, on October thirtieth, nineteen 1904, the churches in Wales were largely empty, the faith of the people was mostly cold. It was a Christian nation in name only. In two weeks, one church had almost 1,000 people attending. Within six months, one quarter of a million people had found faith in Jesus Christ. And within a few years, all of the preachers and missionaries who came out of the Welsh Revival are documented to have been involved in over 30 international revivals. What God did in Wales in 1904 was amazing. Empty churches are filled. Souls are saved. The culture begins to change in really interesting ways. During the Welsh Revival, bankruptcies went up, not down. And they went up because of the number of pubs and taverns that were going out of business. Now, when you read on these stories, uh, the, the stories of renewal and revival, you get all kinds of interesting things. Fun stories that come out. One of my favorite stories that came out of the Welsh Revival comes from a policeman. He was standing outside of some courtroom doors while there was court in session, and he begins to hear music behind him inside of the courtroom. Well, that's a little unusual while court is in session. So the police officer makes his way into the court and hears what had happened. The defendant, during the trial, was convicted of his own guilt. He stood up, and he declared that he was guilty, and he asked in court if he could become a follower of Jesus Christ. The judge stopped at the proceedings, led the young man to Jesus Christ, and the jury broke out in a hymn. Isn't that cool? When God moves, he just decides to move and change things. Late in 1904, Evan Roberts wrote a letter, and it's called The Message to the World. And here's how that letter finishes. He says this, Wonderful things have happened in Wales in a few weeks, but these are only a beginning. The world will be swept by His Spirit, by a rushing, mighty wind. Many who are now silent Christians, who are silent Christians, negative Christians... Christians whose belief means little to them and nothing to anyone else will lead in the movement. Groping, hesitating, half-hearted Christians will see a great light and will reflect His light to thousands of those in utter darkness. This is my earnest faith. If the churches will but learn the great lesson of obedience to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Obedience. Obedience. Obedience, obedience. One of the dynamic and unique things that happens in the book of Haggai is that out of nowhere, the people obey. They do exactly what God has asked them to do. When we do the math with the history that we read of this period of time with Ezra and Nehemiah, and we get to Haggai and even into the other prophet who shows up at the same time, Zechariah, between the time when God sent his people back to the land to rebuild his temple, and when Haggai shows up and says, you guys need to restart, they have neglected the work of God for maybe 16 years now. So the Lord begins to speak to his people for their sin of neglect and their need To work for Him, to build a place of worship, and to obey. And stunningly, the people of God do. If you spend time reading your Bible and you just kind of read through those last few prophets, they're called the minor prophets just because they're short. If you're just reading through the prophets of the Old Testament, you get really used to an interesting pattern. The people of God neglect God, and they begin to fall in rebellion and sin, and so God sends a prophet and says, hey, everybody needs to come back to me, and I will restore your world and your life. And the people of God will respond to that message by saying, nah, we're just going to continue to go on our own way. And sure enough, judgment falls. And you get used to that. So by the time you get to Haggai and it says that they obeyed, you're just stunned. But it's amazing what happens when the people of God obey the voice of their Lord. So here's how this works out in our passage of scripture this morning. First of all, the people of God will work. They will actually work for the glory of God. They had neglected actual physical skilled labor that God had called them to do. They came to the city of Jerusalem with trades, with resources, with creativity. And they ended up spending all of it on themselves instead of on the Lord. So Haggai is going to tell them it's time to take your labor and to use it to make use for the Lord. So they're going to work for the glory of God. They're going to worship for the glory of God. Guys, a a culture of people who follow Jesus Christ requires worship inside of our lives individually, inside of our homes, inside of our public gatherings. Worship is at the center of our attention as followers of Jesus Christ. We worship when we treat someone with ultimate value, right? This is what worship means, to treat someone as if they are worthy of ultimate value. And when God is worshiped, By his people, he is glorified, and this is what God wants. So people will worship for the glory of God, and then people will obey. There will be obedience for the sake of the glory of God. Doing what God called and equipped them to do will glorify God. So at the center of the, uh, at it all, obviously, we've used the phrase, we're going to find it inside of the text that we're going to read, at the center of it all is the glory of God, the people of God working and worshiping and obeying to magnify Him and to make Him great here on earth. So before we begin to jump into the text, I, this is a good place for us to remind ourselves of our description of what we mean by spiritual renewal, because these, these thoughts are going to come up in our text, I think, in in really interesting ways. So here's what we mean by renewal. Renewal is the experience of being realigned with God's presence. It is the resumption of our God-given purpose to know Him intimately and to partner with Him fully, participating in His plan to flood the world with His presence. I don't know about you. I lose sight of it constantly. I have to come back to it. I want my life to be used by God to participate in His plan to flood the earth with His presence, to flood this church, to flood our lives, to flood this city with His presence. God can actually use the hands and feet and skills that are in this room to do that. He's going to realign us with His presence to do it. So Haggai chapter 1, let's uh, begin reading here in verse 7. Some of you will be shocked that we're actually going to move forward this morning instead of backwards. Haggai chapter 1, verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld their dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought in the land, in the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors consider your ways says the lord of hosts now we dug into that thought it happens twice in the in the span of about 3 verses there in the first chunk of haggai chapter 1 but consider your ways he says God has brought them back from exile. God has actually done something stunning. He stirred the heart of a pagan king, the Persian king Cyrus. And Cyrus has written a letter. We showed it. We have a copy of the letter that he wrote sending the people of Israel back home. And he says, I need you to go back home. I want you back there to rebuild your temple. Here are your resources. I'm going to protect you while you're on your way. God does amazing things to bring his people back to renew them inside of his work and his presence. But they had stopped the enemies around them and had caused fear and fright. A brand new king sent a threatening letter, so the people of God decided now is not the time to rebuild the temple. But according to God, it is. So he says this: consider your ways, says the Lord of hosts. I want you to go and find wood. I want you to prepare that wood and bring it back and begin to work to rebuild the temple. I love this. In order for God's people to find the renewal of their culture and of their relationship with God, they're going to have to rebuild the temple. It's at the center of what Haggai preaches to them about in these two chapters. So the temple. The temple might feel just a little bit overly symbolic to us, but it was absolutely central to them. This is the kind of book that if you just kind of read uh, just before you fall asleep, you're just kind of thinking, temple, 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 they rebuild it. Okay, that's fine. Let's keep on moving. It may feel a little overly symbolic to us, but it was absolutely central to them and to God's plan, and it becomes important to us. See, the temple was the center of their culture. Their culture was focused on the worship of God and what happened in the temple and what was represented in the temple. No matter where you lived, if you lived in Jerusalem or you lived somewhere else in the countryside, everything about your life as a follower of God in ancient Israel was focused in upon the temple. And when the temple was built and doing what it was supposed to, there was this centralized focus and realignment between the people of God and their God. When there wasn't a temple, worship is scattered and it begins to fall apart and it begins to drift away from its true purposes. So the temple is absolutely critical. See, in the world around them, temples acted like this. They acted as this refocusing sort of place for people. Whatever their religion was, there was a temple that told them, this is the God that you worship. This is how you worship this God. These are our sacred texts. This becomes the rhythm of their lives. So if an individual wanted to make that sort of divine connection, they would come to the temple, they'd be a part of whatever sacrificial system they had, and it becomes the center of who they are. And the temple in ancient Israel really is no different than that. When it is built, it is designed to be this place where God himself dwells, and it acts as this refocusing for people. The temple, when it was built and working, it centralized worship for the people of God. It centralized the reading of God's Word. There is this beautiful passage in the book of Nehemiah. It's Nehemiah chapter 8. Ezra the scribe, as the temple is built and the city is being built around it, Ezra stands on the front steps of the temple. All of Israel gathers around, and he just reads the Word of God, and he explains it. And the people of God respond in repentance and worship. It's this beautiful moment. You see, it centralizes the reading and the understanding of God's Word. It centralizes the reminders of sin and redemption. This is the sacrificial system, what we need fixed and how God fixes it. When you go back and you read what the temple was intended to do, It even centralizes or refocuses their community life and their family life. When it was time for them to go to the temple and bring their offering and their sacrifices, they would pick up as much of their household as they could and they would go to the temple, they would offer all of that and they would rejoice with the rest of the family of God and they would eat and they would feast and they would sing and they would sacrifice. So it's not just a temple. So instead of starting with the temple... And everything it meant for them, everything it was supposed to do for them, instead of starting with the temple, they started with themselves. So they worked for themselves instead of working for God. And here's what happens is God explains it to them. So by starting with themselves, what happened is that their work turned to toil. They would work and work and work and work, and they would produce just a fraction of what they wanted. It wasn't doing what it was supposed to do, so their work, their labor turned to toil instead of fruitfulness. You might remember some of the language of verse 6. One verse before where we began, the text says this, You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes, right? So the image that God gives them is that their economic failure was a result of their spiritual neglect. It was a result of their religious failure, if you want to put it that way. You looked for much, he says in verse 9, and behold, it came to little. While each of you busies himself with his own house. So they're working. They're working really hard. They're employing the skills that they have. Every single one of them, they're doing their thing. They're planning their vineyards, they're tending their flocks, they're baking their bread, they're using their hands and their skills, but it turns to almost nothing, because they did it, God says, to the neglect of the house of the Lord, so it left them empty, he says there's drought, and there's inflation, economists in the room might have picked that one up, you make money, you put it in a bag, and it's worth one thing, and when you reach your hand back in, and you pull that money back out, it's worth a lot less, it's like your bag has holes, It's inflation. It's going poorly for them. A cool thing happens inside of that phrase in verse 9. It says, While each of you busies himself with his own house. The Hebrew word for busies is the word for to run. It's almost as if Haggai is saying, You're running yourselves ragged trying to get this one thing done. And it doesn't get done because you've put the wrong thing first. You've put yourself first instead of my house, instead of worship, instead of my glory. So on the other hand, instead of that kind of life, what God is going to tell his people here is that our labor given to God for his kingdom will bring both glory to God and fulfillment into our own households. Our labor, whatever it is God has given you to do, given to God to be done the way that he wants it done, can be done for his glory, and it will bring fulfillment into our homes our lives, our families. So the principle is this. Our work done for the sake of the Lord is a tool that God uses for renewal. Whatever it is God has given you to do, if it can be done for His glory, God will use it as a tool for His renewal, for His people. That's a stunning thought, honestly, guys. So look back again for a second on Haggai and the people that he's talking to and the, the literal physical temple that they need to build. You see, rebuilding the temple is going to take all of the skill set of the remnant that God has brought home. Now, I'm not going to go back and I'm gonna, there's, there are lists of people like this and Ezra and Nehemiah of the people that God brought home. And a small fraction of them are priests. So when God is beginning renewal, spiritual renewal inside of his people, he doesn't bring home just all of the priests so that all they can do is stand around and worship. God brings home everybody with every skill set so that they can actually physically rebuild the temple. Think about who it takes to rebuild a temple. Not only are you going to have to clear the rubble out, but you're going to need people who know how to build the foundation for the temple. God actually says, I need people who are skilled in construction and timber to go find the right trees, to mill the right trees. I need architects and engineers who can put those timbers together with the stones that the masons have carved out and those who understand construction engineering put together in the right way. And I also need artists. You see, the temple is not just this stone building, but it is filled. with beautiful things that have been created by artists for the glory of God tapestries and paintings and physical implements that have been formed and fashioned by hands and then you need farmers and ranchers who are doing their things so that they can prepare the bread for everyone else who's doing this other work who can prepare the meat for everyone else who's doing this work it literally takes every skill set that's who God calls to work for his glory so that his renewal can come That's beautiful. So do we know, at least we need to hear, that whatever it is, it is our Monday through Friday job, so to speak. It's an opportunity that God has given every one of us to further his kingdom. Somehow bring his work inside of this world. To partner with him in his plan to fill the earth with his glory. Every one of us can be a part of this. Guys, we don't do this Christian thing so that we can come back next Sunday looking just a little bit more spiritual than we were last Sunday. We don't do this so that next time we show up at small group, we look just a little bit better than we did last week. Right now, I use this image a lot because I really like this image. If you don't, that's too bad because I'm just going to continue to use it. When we gather together in our small groups, in our congregational settings, guys, it's like lighting a bonfire. Every one of us has brought in something with us, and we gather to worship, and we gather to glorify God, and this place is ablaze with worship to God. And when we're done here, every one of us takes our individual torch out of this room. We take it home, and we take it to work with us. This is why we do this, so that God can be pleased with our labor, Haggai says. And so that he will be glorified. So Haggai envisions this temple and the glory of God on earth as the result of our work together. Not just the work done by a few religious professionals. Remember the two other individuals who are actually named in the book of Haggai are Joshua and Zerubbabel. Joshua is the high priest, so he comes back and he organizes the priests and the Levites and the sacrificial system. Zerubbabel is the governor, it says. Well, Zerubbabel turns out to be the citywide team manager. He becomes the general contractor who finds the plumbers so that the temple can b- b- get bills. This is who God calls to bring his glory back amongst his people. And what's beautiful about this book again is that the whole of the remnant of the people of God who have returned obey Haggai's word. They obey the word of the Lord and they begin to work on the temple. Now, why is it they have struggled? God says there in verse 9, "Why is this happen? Why do I need your work for me first?" He says, "Why declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. You haven't built a place of worship for me. So he tells them the people needed to put their worship in the glory of God first, and then the rest of their lives will fit into place, and then they will find the kind of blessing that the Lord can give that they had been seeking without God. Now they will find it with God. So Haggai says they've been spending their resources, their time, their skills, their money, and all the wrong things first. And he says what you need to do is give it to worship first. And for them, it is the rebuilding of the temple. It has to happen for them and their culture. And so it's so much more than just the building of a temple and then forced temple worship, right? Well, mom and dad were involved in building the temple, so I guess we have to get up and we have to go to the temple one more time, right? Can you feel the difference between I have to go, and I really, really want to go. I have to go, or maybe we go, and it's out of obligation, and sometimes that's where we are, and sometimes that's just what we have to do. But God says we're doing it for my glory. And something inside of the follower of Jesus Christ, that little teeter-totter moment has got to happen from I probably should go out of obligation to just try to keep me home. <laughs> I really want to go because I want to worship my Lord. I want to stand next to my brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to be a part of this. So right at the center of it, he says in verse 8, I will be pleased with your work and I will be glorified. But you guys, the glory of our God is central not just to our work, but to our worship as well. Listen to how David puts it in Psalm chapter 29, verse 2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. So we give Him the glory that is due His name. And so there needs to be, there will be, when Haggai's generation, when Haggai's congregation is done, there will be a physical place. And the point is, As much as God's people are able to do so, there has to be a physical place. There should be a physical place where God's people go to focus their time and their resources on the glory of God. A place where we come and our lives are reoriented on God, on His Word, on His glory and His worship. Whatever has happened through the week, whatever has risen up inside of our hearts and our lives, we get an opportunity to show up here and realign ourselves. This soul has needed this this week, and to neglect this, if this soul is broken, to neglect this because I just don't feel like it, fails in the opportunity to worship God, fails in the opportunity to give Him glory, and then my life will start fitting back into place. I love this notion of physical places where the people of God gather, whether it's A building like this that we are blessed to have where it's inside of their homes. I mean, think about it for a minute. The kind of work that it takes for most of us to actually get here on Sunday mornings, the people and the little things that you have to wrangle and put together to actually get here, even close to time. This is discipline. This is commitment. This is effort. This is training and instruction of the next generation for how important that this is. And here's part of what happens. Your neighbors, if they're awake, they actually see you leave your house so that you can go to the house of the Lord to worship with other Christians. The people inside of this neighborhood watch you drive back and forth because you are physically showing up to worship God in this place. When we go to our small groups, and I love it when I show up like this, when we go to our small groups, our blocks are filled with cars of Christians who have shown up to gather together to glorify God. People need to see that. People need to watch us gather to worship Him. And God says, and I will be pleased, and I will be glorified. Again, we may think, as we read Haggai, this temple talk is something that belongs to the Old Testament because we no longer have what we would call a temple. We have a church, but the temple is a different kind of thing. But, guys, Scripture doesn't leave temple talk in the Old Testament. It carries right through to every single one of us. Think of the temple of God as this focal point for His presence and for His glory. And that notion itself begins at the the beginning of all things. And Adam and Eve are walking with God, talking with God. They have this personal, intimate relationship with Him. And then in their rebellion to the one thing God asked them not to do, that relationship gets distanced, okay? So they no longer have that intimate relationship with him. So a little bit later on, with Moses, God designs and builds a tabernacle, a tent version of the temple. And when the tabernacle is built, I've given you the reference in the notes that we give you every single week, the glory of God falls upon the tabernacle, and it becomes a physical location where the presence of God and the people's lives are focused around it. Then a little bit later on, Solomon, King Solomon, builds the first physical temple. And when you read in 1 Kings chapter 8, he prays over the dedication of the temple and the glory of God falls and fills that place and people's lives are refocused on the worship and the glory of God. Now, we don't have a physical temple in the same way that they do, but listen to how Scripture talks about you and me. In 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, it goes like this. As you come to him, you, followers of Jesus Christ, as you come to him, you are a living stone. You come to Jesus who is a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is temple language. Because we have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Because we have become living stones. And when we gather, we become this example, this place where the Spirit of God dwells. It's beautiful. Because, guys, God now fills His people. He fills His church with His presence. And we exist for the glory of God. The world around us, the world around Haggai can seem to get along okay without worship, but the remnant can't. The people of God can't get along without worship. So guys, we discover this over and over again in Scripture and historically. In renewal, the people of God will prioritize the glory of God. Not our own glory, not my glory, not our glory. His glory will be prioritized. A young man by the name of Evan can just leave where he was, and the Holy Spirit just does what the Holy Spirit wants to do. and He can go to the next place, and the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Probably none of us in this room had ever heard of Evan Roberts before this morning. But what a stunning thing God does when he is glorified amongst the people of God. So we can't leave public worship in ruins. See, that's what the people of God had done before Haggai shows up. They had neglected the building of the temples. And again, it's not just that, it's worship. It's a symbol of the glory of God. They'd left it in ruins, and the people of God can't do that with worship. Because worship reinvites God back into our lives. It reinvites God back into the world around us and it glorifies Him when we do it. And here's what happens next in Haggai chapter 1. In verse 12, let's read through the end of the chapter. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message I am with you declares the Lord. That's the message. I'm with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, on the second year of Darius the king. Here's why verse 15 is interesting. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 1. In the second year of Darius, the kings were in the same year. In the sixth month, we're in the same month. On the first day of that month, Haggai begins to speak. And it is only 23 days later that the people of God have actually stirred themselves up enough to actually begin to work on the temple of God. So they obey. All the remnant, I love this, God stirred up the spirit so that all of the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord. This is exactly the intended result. This is exactly the right response from people who have fallen into the neglect of worship, who've been walking a little bit off-center, and the voice of the Lord begins to speak, and the intended result is, God, you're right, and here I am, I need to be back on track. I need to obey. It's exactly the intended result for those who have been frightened out of worship. It's different. It's odd. My culture doesn't like it. They tell me not to do it, so maybe it's not time to do it anymore. This is what the people had done. So God says, no, it's time to worship me. It's time to rebuild my temple. It's time to glorify me. And the heart that was frightened is going to say, you're right. It's time. It's time to worship God and to glorify God it's exactly the intended result of people who want to engage in spiritual renewal as i was thinking through this i uh, i was thinking of this passage of scripture in philippians chapter 2 verse 12 the apostle paul says this to the philippians and it's just interesting to me therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence even when i'm gone please Continue to obey the voice of the Lord and work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You see, there is movement, there is growth, there is renewal, and the people of God obey. Paul says, do it in the fear of the Lord. And Haggai says, the text says, and the people feared the Lord, and they did what God wanted them to do. Notice this, guys, in the language. Twice in these verses that we just read, they're called the remnant. They're the leftover. They're the small percentage of the entire whole. It doesn't take a lot of them for this to happen. We don't have to wait for the entire nation to show up and to decide that they want to follow Jesus Christ. It just begins with the remnant who want it to happen. It begins with a remnant who won't stop praying and working until it actually happens. The remnant heard, and the remnant did their job. And they all feared the Lord, the text says. This just simply means that they decided that God's will was more important than theirs. They decided it is time to work on the worship of God and build his house instead of ours. We'll get to all of that later. We're going to begin with the things of God. This moment was actually foreseen almost 300 years earlier with another prophet by the name of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 10, he says this. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more more lean on him who struck them. They won't stay comfortable where they were, but they will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Of an entire nation, they were given an open door by Cyrus the king to go home If you do the math, it may be roughly 50,000 of them who came back. So instead of the several million who could have returned, we have a remnant. But here's what we're learning. This is the way of renewal. This is the way it begins to happen. It doesn't begin with the gigantic meeting when we've got 800 people who just suddenly show up. It began 13 years earlier when a teenager couldn't stop praying, couldn't stop asking God for the souls of the people that he loved. 13 years later, then we see what happens. This is the way of renewal. It just begins with people who want it. This individual like Evan Roberts who just can't stop praying for more of God. A small prayer group like the Wesleys and their friends in the Holy Club. Maybe 24 students at Oxford who all they wanted to do was read God's word, pray and obey. And the first great awakening sweeps the Western world. Maybe it's a small number of churches in a city, a few people inside of that city who decide to pray and work and seek God. This is what it takes. The powerful thing about prayer like this is that in His time and in His way, in His wisdom, God will answer. And God will begin to show up. And there will be renewal in our hearts, our homes, and our community. We see something happen, not just in Haggai and Ezra and Nehemiah, but we see it over and over again, guys. A rubble plus a remnant plus obedience. Can lead to renewal. Whatever is broken, whatever has fallen to pieces, there may be rubble here. I think we're aware of how much rubble there is around us. But that's okay. We serve a God who calls his people to rebuild. And a remnant This speaks of those who, no matter who is with me, I will seek God. No matter who is with me, I will follow God in obedience. The few who came back obeyed, and God fills his people. So here's the end of Haggai's sermon in that first month when he begins to speak. It's a very simple sermon. It's the last words I want us to hear this morning. I am with you, says the Lord. I am with you. When you learn how to work, to use whatever skills that God has given you, to do what he's called you to do wherever he has placed you right now, we do it as unto the Lord, and all of us need to hear, very simply, God says, I'm with you when you do that. When we worship in our cars, in our homes, when we worship in our small groups, when we worship, when we gather here together to glorify Him, God says, I am with you. And we hear His voice, and we obey. God does what only God can do. Because our Lord, the Lord of hosts, is with us when we do. Let's pray.